The Golden City, Episode 6, Murder in Golden Gate Park, Part 1. Golden Gate Park is one of the best things about San Francisco. It's three miles long and about a half mile wide, a thousand acre rectangle that starts at Ocean Beach and ends at Haight-Ashbury. And it's got about everything you can fit inside a city park. Concert band shell, polo fields, a botanical garden, an art museum, a science museum. It even has its own bison herd. And every evening around dusk, you will see people with backpacks and bedrolls heading into the park because it is a massive, quiet, wooded space in the middle of a city that is a very unfriendly place to be if you don't have a bed to sleep in. A lot of these people are street kids, homeless young people who hang together. And in San Francisco, they're most often associated with the Haight-Ashbury district, although they're all over the city. In the circles I travel in, there is some empathy for street kids. There's also a fair amount of uh, get-a-job hippie judgment. My sense is that many people hold them in disdain because they're perceived as lazy or prone to using drugs or indulging in petty offenses like you know quality of life stuff, like being loud in a residential neighborhood. But few people think of them as violent or as a threat, which is why a murder that took place in Golden Gate Park captured San Francisco's attention. What made you decide to turn this story into a book? It just felt like a tragedy on all fronts. Vivian Ho is an award-winning journalist who's written for the San Francisco Chronicle, The Guardian, Topic, and The Boston Globe. She covered the trial of Morrison Lampley and Lila Oligood, who along with Sean Engold were convicted of murdering Audrey Carey and Stephen Carter. As she writes in her book, Those Who Wander, America's Lost Street Kids, quote, the cold-blooded killings horrified the Bay Area. This is a news story I wrote in February 2017 for Hoodline. The headline, Transient Pair Pleads Guilty in 2015 Golden Gate Park, Marin Murders. Two drifters accused of killing a Canadian tourist and a Marin Tantra therapist in an October 2015 crime spree pleaded guilty to first-degree murder Monday afternoon in San Rafael. According to the Marin Independent Journal, Morrison Lampley, 24, and Lila Oligood, 19, admitted in court to shooting Canadian tourist Audrey Carey, 23, in Golden Gate Park, and 67-year-old Stephen Carter in Marin. Sean Engel, 25, participated in both crimes, but has cooperated with prosecutors in return for leniency. Two days after killing Carey in the park, the trio killed Carter while he was hiking on a Marin trail. They were eventually captured in Oregon and extradited to California to stand trial. Lampley, who used the gun in both murders, will reportedly receive a 100-year term, while Oligood will receive 50 years to life. Angold, who pleaded guilty to second-degree murder, will be sentenced to 15 years to life in state prison, the IJ reports. The spree began after the trio stole a gun from a car near Coy Tower and befriended Carrie, a backpacker from Saint-Jean-sur-Richelieu, Canada. In preliminary hearings, Angle testified that he, Lampley, and Allegood killed Carrie during a botched robbery on October 3rd while they were camping in Golden Gate Park. Carrie's body was discovered near the intersection of JFK and Chain of Lakes Drive, not far from the bison paddock. Angold, a self-professed drug dealer who'd met Allegood and Lampley a week before the killings, told police that the trio wanted Carrie's money to finance a trip to a pot farm in Oregon State. On October 5th, Two days after Carrie was killed, 
the group ambushed and shot Carter and his Doberman in Fairfax, stole his car and headed north. Carter was killed, the dog survived. Police used GPS to trace Carter's car, and Lampley, Angold, and Allegood were captured two days later in the car, which also contained some of Carrie's belongings. All three initially pled not guilty to all charges, but by May 2016, Angold implicated the others in return for a lighter sentence. On April 18th, Lampley and Allegood are scheduled to be sentenced in Marin Superior Court. The first time I saw you, actually, mm-hmm. uh, it was... 2015, 2016, and I'm walking up 7th Street towards Market because I'm leaving the Hall of Justice. I just had jury duty. Oh. And I see Vivian Ho walking towards me on the sidewalk. Uh-huh. And we don't know each other, but I knew who you were because I followed local reporters. Uh-huh. And you were talking on your iPhone that I believe had a Pop-Tart case. <laughs> yeah. Right? The Pop-Tart case. Yeah. Okay. Yes. And, yeah. And, and, but my, my, my thought wasn't like, oh, what a good... My thought was, wow, that's... A crime reporter, <laughs> which which is it's just, it's just true. Here's my first question: What drew you to criminal justice as a reporting specialty? So I ended up in criminal justice just kind of by accident, honestly. I um, always knew I wanted to go into journalism. Journalism was always the thing for me. Um, since I was five, I wanted to tell stories, and my mom told me that you can get paid to tell stories. Um, and so journalism—that's what I wanted to do. When I was in college, I ended up interning with the Boston Globe, and I was doing a night desk. The night desk is a lot of murders, and a lot of shootings, and a lot of just crime, and gore, and just awfulness. And I realized I really liked that, and so I, you know, was uh, really drawn to the fast pace, to the instant gratification of it at first. And just as time went on, I just kind of, it kind of evolved into, from crime and breaking news to criminal justice. Have you ever felt unsafe on the job? Pro- I probably should have felt unsafe on the job, I think. But I think there are, in the moments, you know, there are times when my antenna goes up. There are definitely times when that happens. And then I will pull off and and I will call, call off and try to take care of myself in that kind of situation. But, um, you know, there, there, are, there haven't been any times where it's been very terrifying. I don't think so. I mean, there have been instances like, um, I mean, I, I remember like reporting on wildfires or breaking news, you know, like going to an area and just, you know, nobody's there and all of a sudden all the hair on your arm stands up or, you know, just um, a dog attacked you once or, you know, that, that kind of stuff. But like, I mean, it's just, you, you just kind of recoup and you just keep going. How, how have your feelings about the police changed since you became a crime reporter? Typically, when people go into the industry, especially going into a crime-driven, like crime-driven focus, um, you go in with your eyes um, kind of wide-eyed. You go in wide-eyed. You believe in a just system. You believe in um, a non-corrupt system. You believe in a world that works, and. As time has gone on, I've realized that that is very much not the truth. And I, I would say it's, you know, unfortunately, I feel like it's taken me longer than it should have. But I eventually got to the point where I realized, you know, there are bad people all over the place. You know, even ones who wear badges, they can also be the ones messing up as well. They're human. And... Um, 
it took me a long time to get to that place for sure but uh i think our as a society our understanding of criminal justice and the criminal justice system has really evolved and mine has definitely gone that way as well interesting i mean i remember what i used to when i covered crime stories in san francisco and i talked to the police and i occasionally just have a conversation about mm-hmm. just you know what a weird thing it is that this thing happened or mm-hmm. why would someone do a thing like this and one of the things that i remember uh uh captain uh, uh oh, he used to be the captain at park station uh sanford mm, yeah yeah um i remember him saying to me walter you think too rationally and it was kind of funny but i remember thinking like i would really like to be able to understand the impulse i suppose to do some of those things that like i that i see as just like why would a person do that? And I kind of wonder whether, as a criminal justice reporter, whether you have any of those insights as, as far as why people are likely to do things that most of us would never give ourselves permission to do. Um, because they're, they're impulsive, not just things like, I'm going to embezzle funds from my employer, which is very strategic, but more like, I'm going to steal that person's cell phone. I think the number one thing I've learned reporting on crime and criminal justice is I learned how to feel very deeply. And I've really got in tune with that. And that was kind of, you know, a, a big journey for me because when I first got into this career, I thought journalists weren't supposed to feel. And it was a big thing, like, you know, you're supposed to be hard as a rock, you're supposed to be fine, you know, buck up and go. Um, but I realized, you know, like just putting yourself into the shoes of not just the victims and the victims' families, but the suspects and the suspects' families, I realized that helped you tell a full story, for sure. You know, you have to be able to see the big picture. There's so much more than the snapshot you're given at a crime scene. There's so much more going on. And I feel like too often we, we reduce ourselves to that snapshot. And we can, so we can, all of us can, can do to see more. Would it be accurate to say that being a crime reporter has made you more, I mean, are you saying it made you more empathetic as far as just in general or to people you, who you might have gotten a bad vibe of previously? Oh, for sure. I mean, I think I was already kind of empathetic before. Like I was definitely, I have like empath situation, you know, empath vibes for sure. You know, like I definitely feel very deeply. Um, and that was something I very much cut off going into my career but I think now like it's just I'm I'm leaning into it you know like whatever if I cry I cry I live pretty close I live fairly close to Golden Gate Park so I kind of interact with the park in a number of different ways um, and one of the things I notice is that uh, at around dusk you will see if you're walking down Lincoln Way towards the beach mm-hmm. you'll see people uh, with their packs um, walking into the park like well everybody else is you know wrapping up their time in the park and these people are walking into the park to find their spot for the evening uh where they can be comfortable and feel safe what's your sense of golden gate park i suppose after dark what is it as as far as a how does that space change for you when the sun goes down i mean it's just um that's somebody's home i think that's what we have to realize that's what what i've come to think of it as um, that place that's, uh, we love and, oh my God, your cat. <laughs> um, I, I mean, what is our recreational space? What is our nice green space? 
that is somebody's home. That is somebody's shelter. That is all somebody has in the world. That's all they have between them and the rest of the world. That's all they have to protect them, to rest their head at, at night. I mean, think about when you lie down in bed. Think about, do you feel safe? You, don't, you probably don't even question it. You don't even question, like, do I feel safe right now? But this is something that these kids have to think about all the time when they lie down. And this is where they choose to go. This is where they have to go. This is their only option. There's a million different reasons why a person would find themselves looking for shelter in Golden Gate Park at night. Mm -hmm. um, how typical were, were the three, Hayes, Lila, and Sean, how typical are them, do you think, of... I, I hate to ask the question really but this way, but are they meant as a frame for the story or are they truly representative of street kids in America today and from your perspective? So um, it's really important to distinguish this. I think, you know, out of the homeless population, the ones that travel are a very privileged class. To be, so to be able to travel as a vagrant while presenting as a vagrant person, that's a privilege. To be able to do that, to have the wherewithal, to be able to have the capacity to do so, that's a privilege. So that in itself already narrows it down. Now, making this very difficult is the fact that we don't really have great numbers. It's very hard to count the homeless population. It's especially hard to count the transient homeless population because, you know, they're always moving. And on top of that, you know, it's um, a lot of times people don't always want to admit they're homeless. I mean, um, one category for homelessness that people don't think about are the couch surfers. You know, they're just down on their luck right now, just hanging out with their friends. But do you have an address? Do you have a home? Are you, you're technically homeless. So, I mean, it's, um, it's hard to have a definition and to have to really determine what is representative and what is, what is happening. But what I found from talking to a bunch of kids in those situations is that a lot of people are coming from, that, from a similar background. While everybody has a very unique story and a story that's very unique to them, the elements and the, that brought them onto the streets are heartbreaking and very much the same, unfortunately. So what are the differences and or similarities between travelers and kids who are homeless? If I'm, and that's a blunt way of putting it, I think. but. What is the difference between the two of them? For the because I, I have a sense in my neighborhood. You know, I'll, I live close to the park, and mm -hmm. I see around you know four thirty in the afternoon. I'll start hearing the drum circle uh, mm -hmm. from you know the Panhandle, and uh -huh. to me, those people, I ones I've walked past, interacted with, and seen and stuff, they seem more like many of them are part of that traveler community where they yeah. drove here to be a part of whatever vestige they think of the summer of love in San Francisco and like that, that calls them in some sense and that's what they're here for. And then there are other people who are people who are homeless by choice, I suppose, in some situations because they feel better living mm -hmm. in the park than they would in wherever they came from. So like what's, 
What's your sense? Like, do I have that totally wrong, or what's your sense between travelers and homeless people? So that's also the difficulty. I mean, there are travelers that the traveling, you know, community is still alive. Um, there's one chapter in the book where I talk to the um, the Rainbow Coalition. You know, I talk to the people uh, who go out into the middle of national forests uh, once a year, and they just build this sort of like pseudo utopian society, just out of nothing, like. 30,000 people just formed this society. Um, travelers definitely are a thing. But, um, and you know, let's talk about this question of homeless by choice. Because that is a term that I talk a lot about in the book. Because that was a term that I believed in when I first came to San Francisco. The problem is it's homeless by choice, but you don't have much of a choice. So if the question is, do I go on the streets or do I stay home and get beaten up by my dad? What choice are you going to make? So when we say homeless by choice, it paints a very bad narrative of what these kids go through. Because when we say homeless by choice, then we say you could very well, well not be homeless by choice. But the fact is... Many of these kids don't have much of a choice when they are choosing between homelessness and not homelessness. And many of these kids don't have the option to not be homeless again. Um, now, in terms of traveling and just being homeless, one person I spoke to had a really apt observation is when you're a traveling homeless kid, you have a hobby. Otherwise, you're just homeless. You know, so it's nice to be able to say like, oh, I'm a traveler, I'm a free spirit, look at me, like, this is my choice, this is me living my life, this is me not living tied to a cubicle, I'm free, this is what I am, when the reality is, it probably is not much their choice, it's not as clear cut as we think it is, and that's the, that's the problem, a lot of the people that we see and we judge you know, the drum circles and the, the kids that we see, we think, oh, like, you know, that's a, um, what, what's the, what's the term we use? The trustafarians. Yeah, the, the trust fund kids who are just, you know, like, oh, I'm just. Well, can I, that's a, I always knew that to be an urban, I mean, I've known, I've known, yeah. I've known trust, trustafarians. I've known people who were really wealthy and did not have to cultivate uh-huh. a work ethic. And so they kind of just drifted through life and kind of did that kind of fun, mm-hmm. carefree thing. And then there are people who, and I never believed they actually existed because it just seemed like such a trope. Uh-huh. When I moved here to San Francisco and I walked down Haight Street, and then there's actually a Trustafarian friend who points yeah. out to me. He's like, oh, like, don't give them any money. That kid's going to get in a Volvo and drive back to Marin as soon as it gets dark. And I'm like, really? Like, you? that's a thing? Like, I, it just seemed like such a pat answer that I couldn't possibly believe that was true. Yeah. But that's, yeah. A, wide, that's a widely spread belief. The people are just, you know, they're just hanging out and then they're going to... Uh-huh. And... The fact is, I, I met one when I was, um, I mean, I wouldn't say he was rich by any means, but he would, had the wherewithal, he had a house to go back to if he wanted to. Um, he could tap into funds if he was really in a hard place. I mean, he could figure it out, but he chose to travel a lot and he ran around with these crowds. And we discussed this and everything, you know, I talked to him about it and he was just like, the fact is a lot of these kids are hurting and 
it's hard to suss out who is hurting who isn't hurting and it's hard right because it's like we don't want to help people who don't need to be helped but at the same time there are a lot of kids that need to be helped and i think that's kind of you know my one of the big takeaways in my book it's just like we can't we don't have we don't have we can't do that you know like we can't risk <laughs> sorry no it's okay it's like it's it's hard because we can't risk writing off entire population because of that one kid we found in the park who's a trustafarian we can't do that the fact is for every trustafarian you meet there are a hundred more who are not in that situation at all because the fact is the majority of kids I met while researching this book are kids who ended up on the streets because of abuse, violence, a broken foster care system, mental illness, drug abuse, all of it, or some awful, unholy combination of all of the above. And it's, it's a bad situation. And those kids, they need help. Because the fact is, the longer you stay on the streets, the less likely you are to get off the streets. We talked about homeless by choice and how the question isn't so much like, did he choose this? As can he choose not to do this if the option is there? The fact is, so many of these kids cannot choose, cannot, can't get unhomeless if they wanted to. It seems like they have a society of their own that's very specific and not... Are they insular? Are they as insular as I think they are, as far as the groups of people who, at least in the park, certainly? It's actually really beautiful. It's it's kind of a... You see a lot of the human spirit take over. I mean, like, different areas have different... Um, have, have different reputations. You know, the Haight Street area, like, you're known as a good community. People are nice to each other here. People take care of each other here. Um, I mean, there are always bad actors here and there, but uh, they look out for each other and it's um it goes it, it really it's really fascinating i mean it's the same thing as like you know every city has, has a different personality like the, these communities have different personalities in every city when i was in san diego uh in ocean beach uh, they have a different vibe as well even though they're traveling from different places you know they it just has a very different vibe in san diego than it was in the hate was it all West Coast cities you went to, or where else did you go? I went to, yeah, it was uh, Portland, San Diego, San Francisco, and then Arizona for the Rainbow Gathering. So going back, I, I think I touched on this before, but I want to go back to this. Why do you think people are drawn to San Francisco specifically still in these numbers? And I, It might very well be that they're not, but as somebody who lives here, it just seems as though there's always a large population of people who want to be in Golden Gate Park and kind of want to embody that spirit of freedom. And I don't want to characterize it too much because I don't know these people, but it just seems like the drum circle has been a thing. I've lived in this apartment, I don't know, 11 years. And the drum circle's always, it's never not been a thing. It's always been a thing. It's a constant presence that if I don't hear it, I wonder what's going on. And so like, why 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 do they want to be here? Because it's not 
just as not this doesn't even just apply to the homeless population and a transient population this applies to everybody san francisco's the city for lost things and lost people and lost souls this is where we we gather we come here when we feel like we're looking for something everybody has come to san francisco for this reason think about it it's the beginning of time everyone loves san francisco for this and we've always welcomed people like this um the city has a reputation it's known to be welcoming it does this even though it's a very anti-homeless city now it still has a reputation it still has that community sense and in the upper hay you know people still have that community it's just the city itself is different in part two of this episode, Vivian reads the first chapter of her book, Those Who Wander, America's Lost Street Kids, which is available in bookstores and online. Music for The Golden City was written and performed by Michael Tritter. Artwork was created by Cynthia Vega. Thanks for listening.